Wow. I mean, this guy has a story. First off, I've never met someone so young who went to jail for fraud. Well, you'll hear the whole story. But also, after spending several years in jail and all the experiences of that, plus all the events leading up to jail, he has totally transformed his life. I'm talking about Ian Bick. You could check out his very popular YouTube and TikTok clips about his experiences in jail and his podcast. I highly recommend you check out his podcast. That's how I first uh, learned of him. But let's hear his story. How did he get in jail? What happened to him in jail? And what happened afterwards? Here's Ian. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Ian Bick, I was watching some of your YouTube videos, and then I watched the Max show, the HBO show, uh, uh, Generation Hustle, which featured you. An incredible story. I was like blown away by your story. Well, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I appreciate it, man. I'm glad we can make the time to make this happen. Yeah. So you basically went to jail at this young age, and now you've been telling the story. And it was like an incredible story. So I don't know how really to do this. Just what happened? Why did you go to jail? I mean, I know the story, but let's let's go through it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy story. I mean, in a nutshell, um, I started promoting teen nights, you know, and, and doing house parties at, at 16 Oh, you should go to jail old. for that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's how it started. I, I started, you know, as a sophomore in high school doing these things, and I turned it into a, a business, a party promotion business. And, you know, 16 years old, making $10,000 in one night, and it's all cash. And, um, so can you, can you walk, walk me through that? So you're a sophomore, you got some space and you know, this is all on the various videos and stuff, but I'm just describing it. You, you got a party space to, to do this in and were you filling up every party? Like, and it cost, I assume you, you, you charged. Yeah. Um, so it was like this local historic rock club in Danbury, Connecticut called Tuxedo Junction. It had like Oasis play there. It had all these big bands. Um, it had deteriorated in, in later years, and then it was becoming just like a regular nightclub, and they did these things called teen parties. And um, I had, had seen them in past years, and I had gotten the idea to kind of bring them back and put a spin on it. So I would rent the place from the owner, uh, 1500 bucks. At first, he let me rent the small room, then I escalated to the big room. And the total expenses were anywhere from like two to $3,000 between security, the venue, uh, like sodas, flyers, anything like that. And then, um, you know, it turned into like, say we would sell a, a ticket for 10 or 12 bucks. You get a thousand people minus your expenses and that's your profit. Wow. I was a paper boy when I was a sophomore in high school. I didn't make any money at all. I was made like $30 a week, but what, first off, I, I saw in uh, one of the videos or in Generation Hustle, part of the reason you did this was not just for the money, but people knew who you were when you were doing this. You were, they were going to Ian Big Parties. You were a celebrity at the school. Yeah, I, I always say like, so I was never like a drug addict or addicted to alcohol or anything like that. My addiction was always popular to like chasing popularity and, and wanting to be liked. 
Um, and that like fed off of it. And I guess in a way it's kind of what I do now in that sense, but it's just fueled in a, in a, in a positive direction. So I think that's kind of like always there, but it, it expanded and matured as I got older. But these, these throwing these parties, this seems like a positive direction. Like you were running at that point, a legit business as a sophomore. Yeah, it was a legit business, but I think that I could have, I think that the next steps I took were fueled just on wanting to be more and more liked and wanting to be out there and to be famous. I guess I valued fame way more than I value it now, which is, it's funny in a way because now I guess you could say I'm actually well-known, whereas before only, you know, like a thousand kids at a local high school knew me. Uh, Now millions watch the content, but I'm just not motivated the same way as I was before. And I think that's where the, the negative aspect comes about it, being that young kid chasing fame, celebrity status, the money. Um, and that just propelled me to make a lot of bad decisions. Now, was the popularity, like, were you getting girlfriends? Like, what was what was going on in your personal life while this was happening? So the thing with me is I'll always tell people, like, I'm very, I'm like, I'm extroverted, but I'm introverted in a way. I've always been shy when it came to, like, women in, in high school. Um, I was very, um, like, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't necessarily good looking. I was like the chubby, nerdy kid, you know, with the, the with the glasses, and um, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And I think it wasn't until really like after prison, when I like I had a new body and I started valuing going to the gym, that that mindset really changed. But for someone that was like the king of the house parties and was like the, one of the most popular kids in school, I, I wasn't the one getting all the girls. And so. Like okay, so what happened next? You're th- you're making a ton of money for what were you spending the seven thousand a month on? Like what could you even spend it on? I so I bought a um, my first car was a, a Honda Del Sol, which I did not know how to drive because it was stick. It was a two seater coupe, like a convertible. I thought it was the coolest car ever. It was like the cheapest thing to a sports car, but I couldn't drive it because I couldn't learn uh, um, stick. So my dad, I gave it to my dad, and uh, then he, I wanted an Audi. And because um, I had friends that had an Audi, but I didn't have that much money. I, you know, I had like 10 or 15 grand cash. So I go and buy this Audi for like seven grand. And any Audi you buy for seven grand, usually going to be like a piece of shit. So I, I bought this black one that was in nice condition, but I got halfway home and the check engine light went on and the, 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 oh, hoods, no. the hood started steaming and the person that I bought it from blocked me. Um, so I would spend money on stuff like that. And then um, there would be, um, I would always take my friends out for dinner. Um, I would take them out to dinner. I would, we would do um, like, no one, no one ever had money to go out because they were either not working or their parents would give them 20 bucks to go out or whatever. And um, I would pay for the movies. I would pay for dinners. I would pay for whatever. I, I was the one that paid for it. And I bet your parents were proud of you. Yeah, they were definitely proud of me. Always very supportive. My dad had a catering company, so I worked for him. I grew up like going to like the premieres for Harry Potter because he was like one of the caterers for the Goblet of Fire when that movie came out. I yeah. got to do cool things, and I was involved in the business through him. And so, okay, so now you're trying to get bigger. What what happens next? Um, so I get I, I, like in my mind, I figured the next step from throwing these club parties. Well, two things were happening. One, the market was getting oversaturated because everyone wanted to start doing these parties to make the money. So the market gets oversaturated and they kind of fizzle out. And two, I figured the next step up would be doing concerts. 
uh, being like a concert promoter, kind of like mimicking what like Live Nation did, who was like the leading concert promoter at the time. And um, that that was my plan to do large scale concerts at local colleges and arenas. And by the way, when you say you got saturated, were, were kids available all the time to go to parties or eventually, like you say, there's so many parties, how many parties could a kid go to? I, I think that, that what happened was the, the, the part, the nightclub business for teens was getting a bad rep because so many kids were doing parties that kids would go to one and there would barely be any people there. So it was hard to differentiate who was throwing the parties. Um, and kids weren't good. The thing about the teen nights is we did it once a month. It wasn't something where you could do it every weekend. So when they start popping up every weekend, it kind of loses the fizzle and the spark yeah. to it. Um, and kids just got tired of it. And it just, it, it just like died out and it didn't, they weren't happening. Now concerts taking it to a new level. Cause you got to get a bigger space. You got to secure the space. Uh, you got to get the uh, talent to perform and then you got to promote it. So it's a, a, an added couple dimensions. Yeah. It, it, it's definitely like, it's a big league you're working with. You go from team parties, which cost a few thousand to, a concert that can hold 5,000 people and the budget's, you know, $120,000. Uh, and, and the very first show I remember doing was Big Sean at the, the college, Western Connecticut State University in Connecticut in Danbury, where I was living. And um, my business partners at the time had actually went behind my back to put this show together with another guy from Rhode Island that um, was in the concert business. And they came to me after they booked it and paid for everything, realizing they kind of needed my help to promote it. Uh, so luckily, thank God, down the road, I didn't end up putting any money into this concert because the concert ended up losing. But that was like my first um, foray into the to the big concert business. And I got to work with Big Sean. I got to meet him and see how like a production of that caliber gets put together. And uh, it did lose money, though. Like what made you think you could make money in the business? I was just, I was very naive. I, I just always, so like me, like I always think best case scenario, or at least at that time, I was never considering the worst. So in my mind, like when I was drafting up budgets and thinking how things would go, I'm looking at, okay, the capacity's 5,000 people. I'm always thinking it's going to sell out at 5,000 people. I'm not looking at what the minimum is that you need or what's worst case scenario or anything like that. It was always, okay, it holds 5,000 people. We're going to get 5,000 people to go. And this is how much we're going to make. So it was never even a thought of what could go wrong. And so what was the first concert where you were like, you, you had money at risk or you had investor money at risk? So after that big Sean concert failed, um, our, me and my partners kind of worked things out together because that concert was a flop. They lost some of their money and we came together and we're like, we could do this better on our own um, working together. And that's when we start raising um, funding from like friends and family, raising investor money. And I go to like legalzoom.com and I print out an investor contract. Cause in my mind, you know, I'd watch movies and TV shows that if you're going to run a business, one, you need an LLC. So we made an LLC got a business bank account and I'm 16 years old at the time, 17 years old. And, um, you need those things and you, you need contracts, any deal you need needs a contract. Um, so I go, um, start like handing out these investment agreements at the high school. I'm meeting up with kids, I'm connecting with them and I'm saying, Hey, do you want to put money into this? 
Because before that, I had gotten some investors like a few hundred bucks into the team nights and they had had seen good returns. But now I'm asking people for like 10 or $15,000 because we wanted to do a Wiz Khalifa show and that would cost like 120,000. And very- How how much would it cost to book Wiz Khalifa? um, So one of our partners was saying at the time it was going to be about 60 grand to book him, which turned out to be false. Um, He never actually had the connection to book him, but we were operating under the assumption that he could get us a Wiz Khalifa for $60,000 and that the show cost $120,000 with the venue, security, production, everything like that. And we needed to show proof of funds that we could actually uh, get him. And so um, I start going out with these investment agreements and no one's biting. No one wanted to risk that much money. So what I do that kind of like defines the rest of my future is I edit one of the lines in the contract to say, um, you'll be guaranteed your initial investment back, not a profit or anything, just you'll be guaranteed your initial investment back. So, and you'll get a percentage of the show if it makes money. So to simplify it, if the show cost a hundred, hundred thousand dollars, uh, if they put up $10,000, they would get their 10 grand back, whether the show lost or not and they would get 10% of any potential profits. So if it made $110,000, you'd get 10% of 10,000. So now, did anybody, or did you think, do you think to yourself when you wrote that it was a guarantee you get your money back? Do you think there was a risk that they wouldn't get? Did you have like a plan B if they didn't get their money back? And second, did any parents of these kids come to you or or your parents look at this line and say, you know, Ian, how can you make this guarantee? That doesn't sound right. Well, I never showed my parents the contract, <laughs> um, but the other parents, no, no, no one said anything. Um, it was just. Um, it was just so random, you know, I would like, I guess it was luck that no one asked or anything. I think another part, um, was that people saw that I was already successful. People saw that I was already promoting parties so that there was that element. Um, there was news articles coming out that I was like a local entrepreneur. Cause I just did like this charity thing for the local homeless shelter. These things were happening. And I didn't think, that there was that there was even going to be an option of how I would pay them back if they lost money because I was just sold that Wiz Khalifa would sell five thousand tickets, um, right? So that's just what I based it on. I, and at that time, the break even for this whole concert was like twenty two hundred at the lowest ticket. So I was like, okay, at the very least, we're going to get twenty two hundred people. So there was no discussion, and like throughout my whole story up until I would say until I start my new business now. Um, that I would actually consider, well, what happens if it loses? What are the, what are the negatives to this? Yeah. So, so you go out and like, do kids have money to invest? Yeah. (laughs) See, I guess that's one of the shocking things about this whole story is that I was able to get kids to give anywhere. Like the lowest investment was 500. Some kids were putting up a thousand, others 3000, some, the most we got was like 12, five from someone and it's kids and their parents. Right. And they would be coming to school with like checks made out to my business for like 10 grand. And after like a week, I had a, you know, $125,000 in this bank account, in the business bank account. That's, you know, 
there's some Silicon Valley companies out there that, that can't raise money that fast. <laughs> and this is no business plan. No business plan, nothing. Just like a, one Excel spreadsheet showing the budget of the concert. It was very straightforward. Artist cost, venue cost, security, yada, yada, yada. At the bottom, gross revenue potential at this ticket price. There was like three tier ticket prices. If it sells 5,000 tickets, this is how much we're making. So yeah, so if someone had put in $3,000, what were you telling them was the potential they could make? So on $3,000, if the show cost $120,000, they would get whatever that percentage was of that they put in towards it. That's how the pot was split up. So like, what did you, what did you think was the, the profit was going to be? I think, you, I think it was going to gross like 250 or 300,000. Uh, so they could potentially double their money. Yeah. If, if the thing sold out, I mean, that's the thing with the concert business. There's a huge returns. If a show, if you have a sellout, you know, there's, it, you can make a lot. I mean, I had already seen it firsthand. I was investing three grand, four grand into the teen club business. And I was tripling that. So I, I knew that it was legitimate in that sense, that it was it was possible to do, just not on that level. I was just trying to get too big too fast. And how were you going to pay yourself? Like what percentage uh, were you going to get of the profit? So I at that time, I had personally invested 10 grand into it. So that was my like share of it too. I had money into it because I was making money through the teen nights. I had invested money. And then like my company was going to get like a, like a small percentage of like 10% or whatever that we shaved off the top for like organizing the whole thing. The main thing was just for like exposure, getting us out there and getting a show under our belt. Okay. And then Wiz Khalifa didn't happen. What'd you do? So Wiz Khalifa doesn't happen. Show blows up. Our business partner ends up lying and, and was not able to ever get him. And so we go to the investors and we tell them the truth. We had like this meeting, this famous meeting in, in my living room at my parents' house um, and all the kids showed up and we just said, hey, it, it's not going to work out. You guys can have your money back or we have a new idea to invest the money into a bunch of shows in, in Connecticut and Rhode Island and Massachusetts and split the money. So it'd be even less risk. Money's still guaranteed, um, but you know this is what we would do and, and half took out their money. And the other half uh, stayed. And, you know, looking back on it now, I really wish everyone just took out their money because that probably would have been the end of it. Um, but but half stayed and, and we it, there was like 60 grand left, give or take. And, and we put that into like six shows um, spread out over like six months. And these were just what kind of shows were these? Uh, these were EDM shows, electronic dance music. These were hip hop shows. These were, um, yeah, that, it, those were the two types of shows that there were there. And it ranged from small capacity nightclubs to an arena, two arena size shows. Um, the issue became is that $60,000 doesn't cover six full shows, you know, like six full scale productions. So we were investing in basically the way I did best describe it is I was like the hedge fund investing into other people. So I raised the money took all the risk. And now I'm investing into other concert promoters who are in charge of the finances, the artists, the marketing, and it's out of my control. And something I realized now is that every time I was always out of control, not doing it myself, not promoting it, it always failed. Um, so I was giving these individuals money, other promoters and stuff, and just every single one of them tanked, lost money. Um, and how did they lose money or were they kind of scamming you? 
Um, I got scammed a couple times, um, like never got the money. Like I gave 15 grand to this foam show at the University of Massachusetts. And to this day, I never got the money. I had gotten a lawyer when it first happened and I spent five grand legal fees. So at that point, I'm already five grand in. What am I going to spend 10 more? And then I'm, I'm breaking even, even if that it was still going to be a loss either way. Um, what happened was this was like this, this string of shows was the, the determined are basically the, the changer for the rest of my life. Because on the first show, um, I was getting reports from the guys we were partnered with and they were saying how well the show was selling and everything was coming together. And then, um, the night of the show, and I'm relaying this to my investors, the night of the show, I went with my friends that had invested. We got a limo, we got hotels. We're at the University of Rhode Island watching this whole thing. And I'm thinking we're making money. And one of the guys that was partners in the show from the other team comes up to me and he's like, dude, we took a wash on this show. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we lost all this money. And it was in that moment where I'm like, fuck, like I, I lost all this money. I didn't know we lost this money. And I had the decision to make whether I tell the truth to the investors. These were my friends and stuff. And then they're going to end up not liking me after or two or, or and if I tell them the truth uh, as a part to number one is that they might think I'm trying to screw them because the place looked packed. And what I re didn't realize at the time is that looks are deceiving in the concert business. You could have a room that looks packed, but it's really not that packed. It's just it's all the optics. And um, the, the second option was to lie to cover it up and hope the next show would make money to cover up that lie. So I chose to lie and it ends up none of those shows make money. And I just kept getting into a hole and a hole and a hole. So on this first 60,000, how much do you think you were in the hole, the entire 60,000? So on the 60,000, I think I got back about 20,000 um, like revenue from the event. So I should have been in a perfect world down about 40,000 but I guaranteed everyone back their money. So I'm out the 40,000 regardless right there that I owe. Then the second aspect to this is that each show, I'm hoping the next show is gonna cover the losses and I'm not telling them that they're making money or that they're losing money. So I'm, imagine, I'm, I'm creating an imaginary profit. So if a show lost five grand, I'm saying it made you know five grand. So that's already 10 grand uh, split right there that, that I'm down. Mm. So. All in all, I was down probably, I, I think I created, um, you know, 20 grand of fictitious profit. So I think I was out about 60 grand on this whole thing that I owed so investors. At this moment, were you like, like, were you able to sleep? Were you stressed? Like, were you nervous going to school and talking to people? Or were you kind of confident that this was going to work out? The first few months, I was fine because there was always another show. So the way my mind works is that, as long as there's something planned, I'm okay. But when there's not something planned, like in the horizon, that gives me hope. Like if there's no hope, then I get worried. Then I get anxious. Yeah. Like in prison, for example, if you have an appeal, it could be five years out, an appeal date, you're okay for those five years because you have hope. Like if you have a 20-year sentence and your appeal court hearing is in five years, you're okay. Mentally, you're, you're at peace for a little bit. It's when that, that last option is gone, that's when, you know, you're in anxious mode and, and you're like, you know, you don't know what to do. So I think that's when the stress started. 
Uh, but that was like months down the line into it. And what year were you in at this point? Were you a junior or a senior? This was senior year, 2013. I had left high school. I was supposed to graduate a semester early, but they ended up hold, holding me back over a 0.5 credit, literally 0.5 credits. And I had to get a lawyer and end up suing them to get my diploma. They didn't let me walk at graduation. It was a whole big thing. They didn't like that I was doing the house parties and the club nights because they were getting a bad rep for like the inappropriate music and the girls grinding on the guys and this and that. Um, what I realized is like public high schools are very like anti, you know, like going off the establishment, making like you have to go to college, you have to do this, you have to do that. And they and I was everything but that. I was not believing in college. I was not at that point. I knew I wasn't going to college. I went to Johnson, Wales for a weekend in, in Miami. Uh, that my, my parents were like, listen, you don't have to go to college, but you got to at least go to this to see if you like it. And they sent me and, you know, it was cool and all, but the people at Johnson Wales, um, they, they, they give us this tour around their huge campus, how great it is. And they're like, yeah, but you're not going to use any of the facilities here for the first two years. You're going to be stuck in the classroom doing the academic part. So that was a turnoff. And then the biggest turnoff of my life um, for, on the college aspect was they brought us to the Fountain Blue Miami Hotel and um, they were introducing us to interns that had gotten jobs there after they graduated because they were like, this is where you could work. And I thought that was really cool. And then I, I see what one of the interns doing and she's folding and polishing silverware, folding napkins, polishing silverware with a college degree. And at that point, I had already had a corporate job working at a conference and banquet center in Danbury. I was helping them book proms and weddings and stuff. So I was way above that at, at that level. So that was like my decision. I'm never going to college after seeing that. I, I totally agree with you, by the way. I mean, college is a total scam. I mean, well, co college presidents should probably all go to jail, but that's a whole other topic. I mean, they just keep raising tuition. And because the government backs all the loans, they know they're going to get their money. They keep raising it more, more. And 18 year olds are the ones that get screwed borrowing all the money. But this is a whole other topic. So, but did you think maybe, oh, when I graduate high school, I could maybe forget about all the debt that I owed everybody. I could just confess to everybody, hey, we, we ended up not making any money. Sorry. Next time. No, never. I always, I always just wanted to, so like, all of my lies, like over time, have always stemmed from just wanting to pay people back and just buying time. So it was always just like a stalling tactic to try to figure out the next thing to, to make people money back. That that's so, all it ever was. So after the sixty grand, what was what was next? So next, what happened was um, my one of the kids that invested was starting to become my best friend, and uh, he came up to me and he kind of figured what was going on and. He gave me a business idea that he was doing um, to resell electronics. He was getting like Beats by Dre and Beats pills and Otter boxes and all these things that he was saying, you know, was coming off the back of a truck that was like dented and it was marked really cheap. And I didn't, I never was into these types of things. So I didn't really know what I was getting into, but he was basically saying, we could get like this Beats headphones for 40 bucks and we could sell it for 300 bucks. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's hundreds of percent return. We could start a whole business here. Um, so I get the idea to start taking more investments from like people that I worked with at this um, banquet facility, this and that, but it wasn't going to be an investment. It was going to be a loan guaranteed, guaranteed loan. 
at a 50% interest rate of return over 30 days. Because the logic is, okay, if you, James, give me 10 grand, I'm going to use that 10 grand, buy 10 grand worth of electronics, sell it on eBay and Amazon, which will sell within 30 days, you know, 100%, I'm thinking at the time. And it's going to make like 30, 40 grand on that 50 grand. So I can easily give you five grand back on your money. And that's how it starts. I start, you know, pitching these loans um, for at a 50% rate of return. And it started out so innocently. And, you know, it just, it, it escalated. I was able to pay everyone back um, that money that I was out without anyone, you know, figuring things out. I think had it got stalled like two or three weeks more, there would have been problems. Um, but this was, it was, it, 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 it was what it was. So, so the people who, so, so you were paying people back not out of the profits of this new electronics business, but out of the investments that people were giving you for the electronics business? Yeah. Oh no, out of, out of, the, out of the proceeds from the electronics. We were selling electronics in the beginning. So, right. So were you paying back the old party investors? Um, yes, I was paying back the old parties with the profits of it. And then, and so, you, so this electronics business was making profit. Like where were your estimates wrong in the electronics business? Well, so what went wrong with the electronics business is they turned out to be fake, the electronics. Um, and we realized that very quickly. And um, then Apple, I mean, eBay and Amazon started banning our accounts. And the, and the guy we were getting the money from, I mean, the guy we were getting the product from couldn't provide the quantity of the product that we were getting, um, which is fine in itself, because at that point, you would have figured that I could have just went and told everyone, hey, it's not working, but instead we kept taking more and more money and it just all happened very quickly. Like in the, in the matter of weeks, I had like six or $700,000 in, in revenue um, and, and in loans, but they're all due at a 50% rate of return. Right, and at some point your revenue dropped off a cliff because you had no more product and the product you did have didn't work. Yeah, and then um, while that's going on, I'm just figuring, okay, I'm 18 years old, I have no credit. Um, people refinance their homes and take one loan to pay another. So until I can figure out ways to make money, I'll just use one loan to pay off another loan. And that's how this, you know, accidental Ponzi schemes formed um, because we were taking income, like a lender's money and paying off another lender. But everything was structured as like a loan. Yeah, yeah. If you had just structured it as without the word of the guarantee, if you had just structured it as equity, you would have been okay. There were so many things I could have done. I mean, if I just went to the bank and tried to get a loan on on top of the income we had in the bank or anything, there's so many options. I could have bought real estate, uh, but instead I go into the most high risk business ever because simultaneously I'm like, okay, I want to like be like this big hedge fund investing into startups, and I'm investing two hundred fifty thousand into the concert business again. I'm investing money into a nightclub. I'm doing all these things like a, a shoe business I invested in, which are all like sound legitimate investments. But the problem was none of the things I invested in could generate returns immediately, which the business had no cash flow. The only cash flow was loans. So it needed immediate cash flow. And everything I was investing in was like six months down the line if it was to make any money. Right. And, and, you know, technically speaking, of course, loans aren't cash flow. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. Loans are not cash flow at all. And so at, was there any point where you were like, 
okay, I, I need to make a, I need to spend a little bit of this on myself or because you, you needed to cultivate an image of someone who was successful so you could borrow more money. Like there's Ponzi schemes are complicated in that you can't just keep borrowing money either. Yeah. Like, yes, the returns, you could return earlier investors or lenders from the money given you by new lenders, but you also have to cultivate this successful image to appear like a success. Yeah, no, I I always hated like when the FBI or the government brought up like saying like I spent money to try to look a certain part. It was never the case. It, this was such a short period of time where we were just kids, like we were 18 years old and we're looking at it as like, okay, we're working for this company. We need to get a paycheck out of it. So like we, we took, withdrew money from the business to pay ourselves and that got spent on stupid things. Like we went on a couple trips and we bought a pair of jet skis that like the investors use that I thought was like a business purchase, like a business car, but business jet skis. Um, we went to dinners, but it was never like, you know, go buy like a, a fancy car or travel, you know, to another country or put kids through like college or anything like that, or buy houses for myself. I would say out of the whole amount of money that got brought in, I would say probably like $100,000 got misappropriated out, out of this whole amount. And it was just, you know, spent on dumb things in a very short period of time. When did someone and who kind of um, started investigating? Like, why did the law start looking at you? So six months later after, because this was all over the span of six months, um, this is after like all these concerts failed, like this new round of concerts that I invested in and no loans were coming in. Everything was bust. Um, I finally go to a lawyer and I explain the whole situation and he sends letters to everyone all the investors, because I gave them a detailed list. And at this time, with the interest, I owed like 1.3 million. Like if everyone got their oh interest. Gosh. Yeah, if everyone got their interest. Um, because people were rolling over their money. So this $500,000 turns into 1.3, 1.4 million. It's crazy. And his idea is he tells me, don't communicate with everyone. Block everyone. Don't talk to anyone. I'll handle this. And he sends everyone a letter saying, you know, the company's bankrupt and we're reviewing everything and we're going to work out a payment plan. Everyone was like, okay, that wasn't really the main issue. They were waiting to see for further instructions. Where it takes a turn is he sends out a second letter after reviewing everyone's money and people are starting to get letters saying they're owed zero or they owe me money. Because what he did was, and this is what the government would do later on, say you invested $10,000 in principal that you loaned $10,000 and you got, say, interest payments back. Maybe you got $15,000 in interest payments. And then on your fourth investment, you invested another $10,000 and you let that pile up until it was turned into $100,000 over six months or whatever. Technically, you made ten dollars or $15,000 because you received those initial interest payments. So he was taking the people's principal minus whatever they got paid out and, and saying that's what they were owed. He was, he was looking at only out of pocket from the very first time someone invested, which is logical. And it's the same thing that the government would do years later because uh, no one's getting their interest. It's just the principal that they lost. And that when you send a letter like that to kids 
that are 18 years old that have invested one or $2,000 and thinking that they're owed twenty dollars or $30,000 made a firestorm. And it wasn't the parents that were mad. You know, these were the 40 or 50 or 60-year-old parents that were giving me, a kid, you know, 50 grand at a 50% interest rate. They weren't the ones that were mad. It was these kids that thought that they had lost their entire life savings. That was a, an imaginary life savings. And they went to the police. And the mm. police look at it as thinking all of these people are owed hundreds of thousands of dollars. This is a million dollar thing. This is crazy. There's real estate. There was rumors going around that I was selling drugs, all this crazy stuff. Because simultaneously, the news is posting that I own this nightclub and no one ever really realized, like, I never owned the building. I only owned the business, which wasn't worth anything. So all these things are going around. Things got blown out of proportion. And now the Danbury Police Department's investigating. And me and my lawyer go to meet with them. And the first interview with them, it was one of those sessions where we hear everything that they have. And they were saying, like, I spent 500000 Disney World or Universal Studios own real estate. And this is before they ever had the bank record. So we knew they were fishing and they didn't have anything. And eventually like someone, like one of the detectives there, like in every story, like Wolf of Wall Street, whatever, had a hard on, he had connections and like the state's prosecutor declined to prosecute and it went up to the federal level. And that's just when it, this is, you know, April, 2014, I got called to the department of banking, didn't realize we had a department of banking and I sit down, I get subpoenaed, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to go there and explain everything because I'm thinking this was just, it's money loss. Like, I didn't mean any ill harm. I just want to pay everyone back. And I sit there. Well, for, was your lawyer with you? No, I didn't have, I, the, the lawyer that got me into this trouble to begin with, like with the letters, ended up suing me because I owed him $15,000 in legal fees <laughs> after he promised me that the legal fees were free. So I had no lawyer. I didn't. I had trauma, PTSD about getting a new lawyer. I didn't know anything about public defenders, anything about this. I'm 18, and I just go. And I sit there for six hours telling them everyone, every person's name. I bring the bank records. I bring everything. And honestly, that's probably what gave them most of the ammunition at that point. And after that, you know, they're acting like my friends. And then after that, two uh, postal inspector agents pull me to the side, and they interview me for two more hours. And they're acting like my best friend and this and that. And they give me a target letter, which is like the official target letter from the FBI saying you're under FBI investigation. They give this to me after they talk to me, um, which is why they ended up losing that count at trial about that I lied to postal inspectors or whatever. So after when I got that letter, I'm like, I need a lawyer. And I searched on Google best uh, criminal defense attorney, New Haven, Connecticut, and that's where it all begins. <laughs> and this is June 2014 at this point. I mean, you must have been scared shitless. Like, when did you first start thinking you could go to jail? Uh, I never thought I was going to go to jail until the day, you know, three years later that I was actually going to jail. Um, I just, I never thought it. I, I thought the whole thing was just like blown extremely out of proportion. And that's why I went to trial. Like, I'll, I'll die on that sword. Like, I never would have went to trial if they just gave me a good deal about pleading guilty, pay all the money back. But they the first offer they gave me was like four years. I got more time. I, I was offered more time before trial than I got after trial and losing counts at trial, which is unusual. But yeah. they would just, for whatever reason, and this is like, this is not a big money case that you read about, like the Martin Shirkellys and all these people that owe millions of dollars. This is 
you know, $480,000 was a net out-of-pocket loss, and they spent so much money prosecuting me. Two years of multi-federal agencies, you know, investigating every day, showing up to court at trial, the months-long trial, three or four FBI agents that could be out there stopping, like, you know, some real criminals or whatever it was. And instead, they're going after me, who was like this 19-year-old kid. It was just, I don't know. It was just like, I'm not trying to downplay it. It was just like, when you think about the whole thing, like they could have just paid off the money and then I could have just owed them the money after everything they spent. I know that's not how the world works, but it would have been cool if that's how it worked. (laughs) Well, I mean, at this point, were you still, what were you doing to try to pay people back? So at this point in time, I got the idea to reopen the Tuxedo Junction because it goes out of business at that point. Um, I have no money. Now, no money broke in debt. And my dad like helps me get materials like paint and stuff to fix up this venue. And I do all the work myself with a couple friends and I miraculously find new investors and I'm able to get this place open and I, and I turn it into one of the biggest EDM venues on, on like the East Coast. And we start booking these huge acts like the Chainsmokers, Steve Aoki, um, wow. crazy acts. And the problem was, is that it was a brand new business. It's a high risk business. So you're going to lose money in the early stages, which was fine. And it does become profitable by year two or year three. But I can never get ahead because I kept taking the good money I'd make from the club. And instead of paying the rent or the electric, I would pay off an old debt to try to make things right. And it was just like this spiraling out of control, terrible money management, terrible business skills, and it just, it, it wasn't working, but that's what I was running for three years while I was on trial and, and then, you know, battling it out with the FBI. So when you, when you first got, so you got this FBI letter and then presumably at some point you get arrested. What was, what was the arrest like? Uh, so the arrest was in January of 2015. I was just getting back from like the casino at 4 a.m. I was going to this Yonkers Raceway in, in Yonkers, New York, because I wasn't 21. So I couldn't gamble at the Connecticut casinos. And um, I'm 19 years old and I get back. It's like a snowy morning and I'm like, I go to sleep for like an hour or whatever. And then there's just like banging on the door loud. And I jump up and I look out the window, which faces the road and there's like agents, tactical vests, FBI outfits, everything that you would see in the movies, surrounded the house, cars up and down the road, black SUVs, regular cops, the whole shebang. And everything just happened quickly. Like my mom opens the door, she's rushing downstairs, they're yelling her, step back, where is he? And um, they barge into my room. And at this time, I kept getting arrested by local police in regards to liquor violations and things related to the nightclub. So I thought it was that yeah. because my lawyer at this time, I had a new lawyer. He was saying, yeah, when we knew we knew they were going to indict me, but I'd be able to self-surrender. Like you see on the news with the celebrities, they don't go, you know, busting down their doors like Donald Trump's able to just turn himself in. That's what they were, said I could happen. They lied about that, of course. And they dragged me out of the house in handcuffs and they staged the news there because like what news reporter is going to know what's happening at, you know, five or six in the morning. They stage yeah. everything. They get the whole thing out there. They walk me out. The neighbors are going crazy. It's all over like the next door community group. Just wild. Um, and then they keep me outside, like sitting on the ground for like five or 10 minutes until the detective that started this whole thing shows up. 
just to say, hey, you remember me? Like a scene out of a movie. Um, and, and that was the morning. And I got indicted on, you know, 15 counts. And I'm thinking it's just going to be like one or two. And it turns out to be 15. And and uh, did they did you make bail? Like, what was the bail set? So the bail was $250,000. But in the federal system, you're not actually putting up money. The, the main components are, are you a flight risk? Are you a danger to the community? So if you're none of those, you're released. Um, and it was just my dad signing that, you know, if I didn't show up to court, they could go after his house, but he didn't have to bring like the deed or she, he could have still had a full mortgage on the house, you know, um, mm-hmm. they, they're not checking anything. He's just signing a sheet of paper and that's it. And then I was free to go. And then from that point, how many, how long was it before you actually have the trial and the trial's done and then you're sentenced? So this was January of 2015. I got um, arrested. The trial started November of 2015. I was found guilty. Did you have friends at this point? Like, did people hang out with you? So I always say like, this is the funniest thing about my life is that if you took my life and you broke it down into phases, like high school, I would say the high school business, then the business of like the concerts and then um, the tuxedo junction business. And then, um, you know, the whole foods when I started working at whole foods and then now, um, the business I do now, there's always a different group of people that like attach themselves to me and that I'm friends with. Um, and that like are like my business partners or like I'm close with for these time periods. And then the time period ends and I never talk to them again. Cause more likely than not, they end up screwing me over in some way. Like the tuxedo guys, that I was friends with during the trial end up like ratting me out for going out of state to gamble, which is how I end up going to jail. Um, but there was always, always these different time periods. There was always like a different girlfriend in these time periods too. I was always like a lover boy, like relationship type of guy at this point. Um, so it was just interesting, you know, when you're older and you look back at the certain memories and stuff. And I always sit down and say like, when this gets turned into like a documentary or a movie or a book one day, you can't find one person that can connect every single dot. Like I'm the only one that connects every single person together. But like, if I, if you ask one person from 2014 about someone else from 2016, even though the story's connected, they wouldn't know each other because it's so complex. And so, and so at this point you're going to trial, you still think you're going to be free afterwards. Why did you think you were going to be free? Like you saw the indictments probably the indictments, you know, were largely correct or some of them were correct. Like, what were you thinking then? So the logic has always been, and, you know, still to this day is that one of the aspects of wire fraud, which is what I was charged with, was you have to have criminal intent to be Mm. guilty of it. So I always held that I did not have criminal intent because it was never my initial idea to scam anyone or come up with anything or anything like that. Like I've met people in prison that are genuinely bad people that have that bad mindset. And it just wasn't me. It was, it was so accidental how this whole thing started and how it finished. Like using the word guarantee, that's not illegal in the, in the jail sense, but it feels illegal if you actually don't have the assets back. Or I don't know. It's also up to the person signing the contract to believe you. So I, what what did it what it was it that was illegal? They tried to make the jet skis like upon like you're spending on yourself, or what did they actually accuse you of? So they accused me of so there's like there's not a law about an actual Ponzi scheme. That's not the illegal part. The illegal part is using the money 
and so say I promised you, um, I would, you gave me 20 bucks. I said I would get, I was going to buy McDonald's with that 20 bucks. Um, you asked me for McDonald's. I promised you McDonald's, but then I took that 20 bucks and went to Burger King without telling you I was going to go spend the money on Burger King. That's fraud. That's wire fraud because you're doing it. Like say with a debit, say you cashed at me the money or transferred me the money or gave me a check that would constitute the wire fraud aspect of it. What does it mean that you didn't have criminal intent? Like where does that play a role if, if you still have the fraud? So that's just one of the rules that you need to be found guilty of. Like when they break down wire fraud, um, like what it is, like you have to, I, I think the steps to wire fraud are you have to have interstate transportation of money, which is like debit card checks, a wire transfer, anything like that. And then number two is you have to have the criminal intent to defraud the person. So if you didn't have the criminal intent, what would happen? Just a, a massive fine or, and you'd have to pay everyone back or like, what, what would happen then? I mean, the jury, I mean, it's, it was a mixed verdict. You know, there was counts where, so they took, if someone gave me say a hundred thousand dollars, they charged me three times on it in different scenarios for each time the person gave me money. And, um, the jury would convict two of those on not guilty and one on guilty. So it didn't really add up. It didn't make sense. How could I be guilty of fraud with the same person in one instinct, but not guilty with the same person on another? It doesn't make sense. Let's say you had the the fraud aspect, but not the criminal intent. What would be the consequence? Like, would you still be guilty of something? Would you get a fine and avoid jail time? Or what, like, how, how would you be able to get away with the wire fraud, even if you didn't have criminal intent? I mean, I think it would just come down to if no one reported to you. Um, but I like I was still found guilty of it. That's that's what the jury came to. Because they thought you had criminal intent. Well, they they just found guilty. Whether they thought that or not, they still found guilty. I see. So that that's really what it came down to. And then were you shocked that they convicted you? Like what were you like the, when they when the judge said guilty? Um, so I I mean the first I thought I was in the clear the first so the first like four charges read were not guilty or, or deadlocked, meaning it was a mistrial on those counts. And then they started reading the guilty verdicts. Um, yeah. and my heart just sank in that moment. Um, but I mean, we still looked at it as a win in a sense, me and my lawyer, because the, 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 um, prosecution was hoping for guilty verdicts on everything. All 15 counts immediately took the jury four or five days to convict after several instances where they came back to the courtroom and said, we can't reach a verdict on this. And we were working against the clock because Thanksgiving was that weekend on that Thursday. And no one wanted to come back after Thanksgiving. There was a question from one of the jurors, what happens if we can't reach a verdict before Thanksgiving? And then the judge said, uh, it'll be this day in December or whatever. And then there was another question of this and that. And in federal courts, if you if the jury can't if the jury comes back and says we can't reach a verdict, the judge is required by law to say I urge you and compel you to go back and figure out a verdict. And they went back and they had a verdict like an hour later. It was ridiculous. Um, but I think we were just working against the clock in that.
Wow, what a story, but there's a lot more to it. There's what happened to him in jail and then how he reinvented his life afterwards. So that's going to be in the next episode.